Okay, can you turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 4. We're going to begin reading at verse 23. Now, we will eventually get through to Romans uh, 5.21, but we're going to stop briefly at um, Romans 5.11. So we're going to read from... Chapter 4, verse 23, right through to 5.11. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offences and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given us. For while we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, now having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now I want to begin by giving a brief reminder of the reasons why Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. A conflict had arisen between some of the Jewish and some of the Gentile contingent of the church. The primary cause appears to have been that some of the Gentile believers were teaching that the Gentile church replaced Israel as the people of God. Now notice that Paul doesn't begin to deal with this issue until chapter 9. See, Paul understood that dealing with a conflict that threatened to divide the church required very careful and sensitive handling. And to prepare them for this, Paul takes a great deal of time and effort to remind them and to deepen their knowledge of the gospel that saves and unites them. And Paul does not rush in to tackle the cause of contention until he has done all that he can, all that he can possibly do, to make sure that the church has been rooted, grounded, and firmly established in the faith, so that they can hold together while the argument is settled. Now throughout chapters 3 and 4, Paul has introduced three aspects or three different perspectives that they need to have of the gospel. Now this is not so they simply choose the one that they like best. Now each one is essential to having a fuller and a deeper understanding of the gospel. 
So by way of reminder, in chapter 3, Paul spoke about the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now redemption is the language of the slave market. It is referring to slaves being liberated from captivity, being set free from the one who controls them. And in chapter 6, Paul develops this picture of salvation in terms of a person being set free from the power of the sin that controls them. Paul also spoke about propitiation, which means that a sacrifice has been made by the shedding of blood in order to turn away the wrath of God that is rightly directed towards all sin. It is therefore viewing salvation from the perspective of a penalty for sin being paid by Christ as our substitute. He also uses the word justified or justification several times. And justification is the language of the law courts. See, the person who is most senior in matters of law is known as the Lord Chief Justice. Justification, therefore, is about our legal standing before God. If we have been justified by faith, we have therefore been declared not guilty in God's eyes. Now, in his closing sentence to chapter 4, Paul relates two of these three aspects to the death and resurrection of Jesus. He states that he was delivered up for our offences. The death of Jesus upon the cross was where payment was made in full for our sin, for our transgression, for our iniquities. He died in our place and bore the punishment that we deserved. And Paul goes on to say, and he was raised up for our justification. His sacrifice was acceptable to God the Father. Because he lived, a perf uh, he lived in perfect obedience to God the Father, he was sinless, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His resurrection was the evidence that a perfect sacrifice, fully acceptable to God the Father, had been made, and that now those who believe in him are justly declared not guilty. And in this way, God is both the just and is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul begins chapter five, stating, "Therefore, having been justified, that is declared not guilty and counted as righteous by faith, we." have peace with God. And in so doing, Paul is introducing another aspect of salvation that we need, and they needed, to understand, that of reconciliation. See, the consequence of being justified by faith is peace. So where there was hostility, rebellion and separation, there's now harmony, cooperation and relationship. We who were once God's enemies, who willfully alienated ourselves from him, have been adopted into his family, where we enjoy his peace, his love, his discipline, as an objective reality in, our on, in an ongoing, intimate relationship with him. Indeed, this is the fulfilment of the new covenant promised through the prophet Jeremiah. No more shall every man teach his neighbour, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall know me from the least to the greatest of them, says the Lord. Now having been reconciled to God and adopted into his family, we will begin to know him in our daily experience of him through prayer, through meditating on his word, and through fellowship with other members of the family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We now stand before God as his adopted children, 
This is our standing into which we have access by faith. And it's completely due to his favour directed towards those who do not deserve it. It's directed towards those who have done nothing, nor could ever do anything to deserve it. It's entirely due to his grace. Now the only fitting response for those who have, been ex- who have accepted the free gift of his grace is to rejoice, because we now have hope. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now we mentioned this last time. The glory of God, remember, is his righteous character will be fully formed in us and outworked in our everyday lives. So having been adopted into his family, we will increasingly bear the family likeness and go on so until his image has been perfected in us, the image in which Adam was originally created. And Paul continues, not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. So why do we glory in tribulation? See, Paul explains that tribulation brings about an inner change. Suffering builds perseverance and endurance, and that builds character. Now this inner change is the evidence that his character is being formed and will be fully formed in us. And that's why we rejoice. This evidence is not only internal but external also. See, trouble is inevitable as godly character develops and grows within us. Sin is rebellion against God. Therefore, as his character becomes increasingly evident in our lives, the rebellion of sinful people will therefore be increasingly directed against us. Now it's also during times of trial and tribulation that we grow closer to our brothers and sisters in Christ. During these times, conversations become less superficial. They become deeper and more personal. But above all, it's during these times that we will draw closer to our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you noticed in the 23rd Psalm, when things are calm, quiet and relatively easy, the personal pronoun used by the psalmist is he. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. Yet when David describes the journey through the valley of the shadow of death, the he becomes the far more personal you. I will not fear, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. And the rod and staff represent the Lord's discipline. See, trials and tribulations are often periods in our lives when we experience the Lord's discipline. And this is a cause for rejoicing, because it gives us confidence that we're loved by him. Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. It also reminds us that we are children of our Heavenly Father, and that it's through this discipline that his character is formed and perfected in us. As the writer of the Hebrews says, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Although not pleasant, we need not fear discipline. See, David states in the 23rd Psalm that it's the presence of the Lord who bears the rod and staff that is the very reason he will not fear In fact, it's the rod and the staff that bring comfort. 
And to be comforted means to be strengthened. So the discipline of the Lord in times of trial and tribulation will serve to drive out fear, instill strength and give us confidence that we are being made righteous. And this is the very reason for our hope in the glory of, of God. It is the evidence that his promise is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled in our lives. Now Paul has enthusiastically stated we rejoice in tribulation and has given us the reasons why. But why is Paul so confident that pressure from outside us will produce beneficial changes within? Now the reason why he's so sure that suffering will crush us and not destroy us is that because of what God has poured into us. It says he has poured his love into us. And it's because of who works in us and through us. His Holy Spirit. Now notice the Holy Spirit is referred to as a person and not some kind of impersonal force. Paul states that God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul is again confirming that he's speaking of the fulfilment of the new covenant spoken through the prophets as God announced through Ezekiel. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now this statement confirms many of the points which were made in our study of chapter 4. Remember we learned that the Christian life, the outworking of the new covenant, is not about standing still and waiting for glory. No, it involves walking and doing. It also confirms the main point of what we discussed last time, that righteousness by faith does not make void the law. On, con on the contrary, it establishes the law. It fulfills the law. See, when Paul stated that God has poured his love into our hearts, this is the very fulfilment of the law. For as Paul explains later on in the letter, Owe no one anything except to love another. For he who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall commit adultery, sorry, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, steal, bear false witness or cover, or any other commandment are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. Now in verses 1 to 5, Paul has given us an insight into what it means to be reconciled to God and the transformation that happens in the lives of those who sincerely put their faith in him. In chapter 4, Paul has revealed that righteousness is given by faith on the basis of God's grace. He explains it has to be so in order to be guaranteed. We can be sure of it because it depends on the will and the action of God. Righteousness is not something we can produce in ourselves. But what does grace actually mean? In a call to worship a few months ago, we considered the acronym God's Riches at Christ's Expense. And this reflects the basic meaning of the word grace, that it is God's kindness, God's favour towards the undeserving. Now, as we look at verses 6 to 11, I believe that Paul is illustrating the extent of God's grace. In these verses, he makes three statements concerning man's moral condition. 
He says, while we, we were without strength. He then says, while we were, while we were still sinners. And then finally, while we were enemies. And each time, he's getting his readers to consider at an increasingly deeper level just how far his grace extends. He begins, while we were without, we were without strength. That is, moral strength. The moral ability to produce righteousness within ourselves. Even if we sincerely tried our best to obey the law, we would fail. A condition that Paul describes as his own experience in Romans chapter 7. So Paul begins by saying that God's grace extends to those who try but cannot keep the righteous requirements of the law. However, Paul then goes down a level. He then states, while we were still sinners. See, sinners are people who have given up trying. They can no longer be bothered. They're done with religion. They've had enough of trying to live in such a way so as to please God. They simply live to get the best out of life with a let's eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die philosophy. And Paul is saying that Christ died for such as these also. God's desire is for these people too to know the blessing of salvation. But Paul does not stop there. He goes even deeper. For grace isn't just for those who have tried and failed, nor is it just for those who have given up. No, grace even extends to those who are in active rebellion against God. While we were God's enemies, Christ died. Christ died so we could be reconciled to him. And you may ask, what is the evidence for this? Well, all we need to do is read the crucifixion accounts. Read again how Jesus was so cruelly treated, beaten up, scourged with whip cords, insulted, spat upon, taunted and humiliated, and subjected to the most painful and brutal method of execution ever devised by man. And how did he respond? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hallelujah. Now Tom explained a couple of weeks ago that the sacrifices under the Old Covenant can only cover unintentional sins. And this explains why they could do nothing for the human conscience. You see, people knew full well that they weren't simply falling short while trying their best. They knew in their hearts that there were times where they'd not only given up, but also they were actively and willfully rebelling. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can all look back to times in our lives when we've tried to be good but failed. We can all look back to times in our lives when we've simply given up and lived as we please. And I'm sure we can all remember being actively opposed to God and his purposes. The good news is, the gospel is that God has made full provision. His grace extends even to those who are his enemies, which is why the blood of Jesus is effective to cleanse our consciences. Because on account of his death and resurrection, we have been completely forgiven. Now in this section, Paul reminds us of what he said earlier in chapter 3. That God set forth a, propiti uh, a propitiation. He states that having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. This is the meaning of propitiation. 
the giving of the sacrifice to atone for sin and turn away his wrath that is rightly directed at all sin. And Paul states that this is a demonstration of God's love. Now in chapter 3 he stated it was a demonstration of God's righteousness. See, love and righteousness therefore must mean pretty much the same thing. And righteousness is the outworking of love. The problem is that when we read the word love, we often bring our own ideas to what love means rather than understanding what God means by it. See, most people's understanding of the word love does not recognise that love involves appropriately punishing wrongdoing. However, this is completely irrational. For example, in a family where the children are continually fighting, or being cruel, taunting and telling lies about each other, could you honestly say that their parents were loving if they allowed this situation to continue indefinitely? What loving parents would not put an end to all of this strife through appropriate punishments? Loving parents will discipline their children. And if God is love, it means he must eradicate sin completely. However, if he did, who would be left? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God himself has provided the sacrifice. The Bible teaches that Jesus was made sin and bore the punishment for sin on our behalf in his body. His blood was shed so that God's wrath is no longer directed at those who believe in him. And this reveals God's heart, his plan and his purpose. For God, who will rightly punish sin, takes no delight in the death of the wicked. His desire is that none should perish and that all repent and come to a knowledge of the truth. At the present time, God is delaying the day of his wrath in order to give people time to repent. We need to understand that people are not condemned to experience God's wrath simply because they were born with a fallen sinful nature. No, people choose to remain in a state of condemnation by refusing to accept the grace he freely offers to us. And why do people refuse his gift of grace? The Apostle John explains that it's because people prefer to remain in darkness, spiritual and moral darkness. They refuse to accept the truth about themselves, preferring that wickedness and sin remain hidden rather than coming into the light and allowing God to expose their sin. But he does so not to humiliate or condemn, but to get it dealt with, to get rid of it and to form his righteous character in them. The fact of the matter is, even though we were conceived in sin, born with a fallen nature, many choose to remain in a sinful state and do not want to be made righteous. If we are to be reconciled to God, if we are to live as he made us to live, if his righteous character is to be fully formed in us, if we are to willingly live in active obedience to him, motivated by love, then the sin which separates us from him must be dealt with. And this is what Jesus did for us upon the cross when he paid the penalty for sin in full on our, our behalf. Now you may ask, how can it be just and fair that he could be punished for our sin? How can it be, that the, be just that the innocent, the one who is without sin, should be punished in place of the guilty? And it's this issue that Paul now addresses in verses 12 through to 21, which we will now read. Therefore, 
Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgressions of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offence, for if by one man's offence many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace and, and gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And if the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offence resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offences resulted in justification. For if by one man's offence death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offence judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if we are to understand how Christ's death and resurrection is the only way our sin can be dealt with completely, we need to understand how we came to be born with a fallen, sinful nature in the first place. So Paul takes us back to the beginning. He takes us back to Adam. In verse 12 he states that just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, for all sinned. Let me ask a question. From a straightforward reading of that sentence in context, did Paul believe that there was a time before sin existed? Did Paul believe that there was a time when there was no death in this world? Since he clearly states that both sin and death entered the world, it surely means that when the world was first created, there was neither sin nor death. And why would he believe that? Probably because that is what the scriptures he read taught him. Paul believed Genesis to be historical fact, and that includes Genesis chapters 1 to 3. Not only that, he believed that the historical events recorded in Genesis 1 to 3 are essential in understanding the gospel. Why else would he use them to explain the gospel? Now verse 12 tells us several things about death. Firstly, death was not part of God's original creation. Death is therefore not natural. And since God emphatically declared his completed creation to be very good, we can conclude that death is not good. It also tells us that mankind was not created to experience death. Neither was man intended to experience disease or suffering. See, God is not responsible for death, disease and suffering. These are the consequence of one man's sin. 
The point Paul is making is that death is a moral penalty. Death is the consequence of our morality, not our biology. In some of his letters, Paul tells a few additional things about death. He tells us that death is an enemy and that one day death will be destroyed. So Paul has made clear the origin and cause of death, disease and suffering in the world. It's sin. And that sin entered the world through the action of one man. However, the consequence did not remain with that one man. It spread to all. Now in this section, Paul goes on to explain how it can be just that Christ, though completely innocent, could die for the sin and guilt of mankind. Not surprisingly, he does so in the form of a straightforward legal argument, which he makes in verses 17 to 19. Now before we look at that argument, Paul wants us first to understand something about Adam. Paul described Adam as a type of him to come. And you see the him is capitalised, which means he's referring to Jesus. So Adam is a type of Jesus. And a type is an illustration or a picture or an example that teaches something about Jesus. See, Adam is like Jesus and that they are both representative heads of all those who come after them. In another of his letters, Paul describes them as the first and the last Adam. And Paul also points out that their actions had consequences for those that they represent. Now we're familiar with the idea of representative headship. Tom spoke uh, the other week about a high priest who was a representative head of the people. We have governments. Okay, Our leaders and heads of states make decisions that have consequences on us. So in that way, Adam and Jesus are alike. Now having compared them, what Paul really wants us to understand is the contrast. Adam is the representative head of all those who are physically born from the union of a human father and a human mother, our first birth. Jesus, by contrast, is the representative head of all those who have been born again, born of the Spirit, born by water and the Spirit. And this is what Jesus was teaching Nicodemus, a man who thought that the privileges of his first birth qualified him not only for entry, but a senior position in the administration of the kingdom of heaven. And he did so because he was a descendant of Abraham, a Jew, a Pharisee, an expert in civil and religious matters. He was described as the teacher of Israel. But Jesus taught him that it's those who are born again. It's those of the second birth who will enter the kingdom. Those of the first birth cannot even see the kingdom, let alone enter it. Paul also contrasts the action of Adam and Jesus and the consequences. See, the actions of Adam are described as a transgression. The action of Jesus is described as a gift. And he says that the gift is not like the transgression. Adam's sin, or transgression, involves him taking what was not rightfully his. It involved him taking something that belonged to God, something that God had clearly told him that he did not want him to have. The transgression involved taking, but the gift involves receiving. See, the gift is about receiving something that God wants us to have. The gift is about God giving to us something belonging to him and making it ours by right because he has made it a gift to us. Let's have a look at a few more 
differences between the transgression and the gift. See, the transgression was the consequence of selfishness for personal gain. But the gift is given by the literal giving of Jesus himself. It's, a self, it's an act of selflessness. The transgression brought harm. The gift is a benefit. The transgression brought a curse. The gift brings a blessing. The transgression brings guilt, judgment and condemnation. The gift declares us not guilty, gives us justification and acceptance. The transgression resulted in broken relationships and separation. The gift results in reconciliation. The transgression resulted in us having a fallen sinful nature, but the gift involves us having a righteous character formed in us. The transgression brought disease, decay and death, whereas the gift brings healing, restoration and life. Let's just look at this legal argument in uh, verses uh, 17 to 19. Let me first of all just give you a simple summary. He's saying that once man's transgression has brought death to all, then through one man, Jesus Christ, all can have life, and that's eternal life. Through one man's transgression, all are made guilty before God. Then through one man's act of righteousness, all can be declared not guilty. And lastly, one man's disobedience caused many to became, become sinners. Then by one man's righteousness, many will be made righteous. That is the argument he's making. Now, if we read carefully, we notice that each statement in the argument comes with a clause. The first of those statements is only effective if the gift of righteousness is received. Now, this confirms what was said earlier. See, we're all born with the legacy of Adam. We've all inherited his fallen sinful nature. Now, some might wish to argue, well, that's not fair. But to do so would be wrong for two reasons. Firstly, who would not be willing to be the willing beneficiary of an inheritance if we stood to gain a large sum of money or valuable property or land? Who would object to our legal rights of inheritance as being unfair? No one if we stood to gain from it. However, we would not, we're not quite so willing to inherit somebody's debt. And that's exactly what's happened from our ancestor and blood relative Adam. Now, the second reason we cannot justly claim this to be unfair is because God has given us the opportunity of giving up that inheritance, giving up the inheritance of a fallen nature. God has offered us the free gift of his righteousness. We therefore have a choice. The fact of the matter is that most people want to hold on to their sinful nature. They're unwilling to die to themselves and be born again into a new life. Instead, they prefer to remain in darkness they hide their fallen nature behind an outward veil of respectability, either through religious observance or outward acceptance of the moral standards of the society to which they belong, which in Britain today is aggressive secular humanism expressed through citizenship and so-called British values. See, people would rather hide in moral darkness than come into the light which exposes the fallen nature. People refuse to face the truth about themselves, refuse to acknowledge that they are sinners in need of a saviour, and refuse the gift of salvation which is freely offered to all. Now the second clause in, this, in these legal arguments, or uh, 
is stated in the second and third, but I think these clauses apply equally to each statement. I don't think the first clause just is for the first statement. I believe it extends all the way through. And the same is true of the second and third clauses. See, for all three to be effective, it depends on the righteousness and obedience of Jesus. He had to be without sin. Now, the writer to the Hebrews confirms that this indeed was the case. He, he writes, For we do not have a high priest, that is a representative head, who cannot sympathise with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, and yet was without sin. Now, to understand why this was imperative, we need to go back to the events that happened in the Garden of Eden, when Adam broke the direct command of God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As a consequence of eating, both Adam and Eve immediately became consciously aware of the need for a covering. However, God was not satisfied by their own attempts, and in his mercy he provided a more suitable covering for them. But it came at a price, the shedding of innocent blood. An animal, was, an animal that was part of God's perfect creation, in which there was no death, was declared to be, and which God declared to be very good, was sacrificed to provide that covering. An innocent life was given to cover the sin of the guilty. Now the blood of an animal could not make full atonement for Adam's transgression, for according to biblical law, only a kinsman can be a redeemer. It would therefore require the death of a perfectly obedient, sinless human male to make that atonement. And since all of Adam's descendants inherit his, fall, inherit his fallen nature, no son of Adam could make that atonement. So God himself took on human flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God became a man and lived a righteous life in full and perfect obedience to his heavenly Father in order to make the sacrifice which would fully atone for the transgression of Adam. God promised Adam and Eve that he would send a redeemer through the seed of a woman. That is, he would be born without a human father. The sacrifice of the perfect animal would let them know that innocent blood needed to be shed. Indeed, all subsequent animal sacrifices would be a reminder to future generations to look back to the promise made to Adam and forward to the coming of Christ. And when we look at the requirements that God put into his law regarding animal sacrifice, only the unblemished ones would be acceptable. Now, probably the best known example of this is at Passover. Four days before Passover, lambs were brought into the temple courtyard for inspection by the religious authorities who would look to find fault with them. Only those without fault were accepted. Now remember, Jesus was crucified at Passover. Where was he four days before? He was in the temple courtyard, being subjected to the most rigorous examination by the religious authorities who were trying to catch him out. They were going out of their way to find fault and they were enormously frustrated by the fact they could not do so. Even at his trial, Jesus was declared not guilty three times, and Pilate declared that he could find no fault with him. Now the fact that Jesus was without sin was the reason John the Baptist was able to declare, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we don't need to rely on the testimony of men to tell us that he was out sin. For we have the testimony of God himself, who raised Jesus from the dead, confirming that the perfect sacrifice had been made and accepted, and that full atonement has been made for Adam's transgression. So the legal argument 
that Paul has made in chapters 5 is in full effect. It's available to all, but only effective in your life and in my life if we receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. So will you receive this gift of righteousness? Whose legacy will you inherit? The inheritance of the first Adam? Or will you die to self and be born again to become an heir of God and a fellow heir of Christ? Will you continue to live in darkness or come to the light and admit that you are a sinner in need of a saviour? Some may think they're too bad to come, but remember God's grace is not merely for those who have tried their best and fallen short. It is for those who have either given up trying or have rebelled against God. Have you been reconciled to God? Do you experience his peace, love and discipline as an ongoing daily experience? Do you know the joy of the Holy Spirit within, bringing transformation so that you walk in his ways and do the good works that he has planned for you? May this be the testimony of all those present this morning. God bless you. Amen.